and you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through, eight, 1 through 5, should say 5, but that was my bad. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is what we're going to be in this morning. And if you're a guest with us, uh, we just want you to know at the beginning of every message uh, that we believe that what we are opening right now, the Bible, is the inspired, inerrant word of God himself. We believe that God has revealed himself to us through his word so we can know him and love him and worship him. We do not have a God who is distant. We do not have a God who is hiding. He wants to be known and rightfully valued above all other things. And we believe so much in the sufficiency of God's word that we don't think that what I have to say today matters unless it agrees with what God has said in his word. We want to collectively be a church that believes it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says. Uh, And so that's why we want you to see God's word for yourself today, whether it's your own Bible, the app on your phone. If you need a Bible, you can grab the one that's in the rack right in front of you. Turn to page 983. We'll have it on the screen as well. But we want you to see God's word this morning. And we're going through Paul's letter that he wrote to the church at Colossae with this purpose in mind that we would see the supremacy and the centrality of Christ in everything. Because unless and until Jesus is at the center, nothing else will make sense. Until he is who we value the most, we won't value anything else correctly. Our, Our only hope in the brokenness of this world is having more of Jesus. We need to be so filled with him, there wouldn't be room for anything else. And and last week, we saw the conclusion of chapter one, a a chapter which only took us six messages to get through. We're really booking it through the book of Colossians so far. And we've, that's sarcasm, we've moved slow because the opening of this letter is, is quite loaded. As, as Paul seeks to fill the church with truth about Jesus. He wants them and us to elevate Christ in our hearts and minds so we are protected from the teachings and philosophies of this world. And so chapter 1 finished with Paul sharing how he toiled and struggled with all the energy God gave him for the purpose of keeping the church safe in Christ. And, And that desire resonates as as I view our time together on on Sundays because all week long, we live in a world that is saying, hey, come over here. Come come try this. This is better. Hey, come have a taste of this. This is more satisfying. This is more enjoyable. This is easier. And I hope what you hear every week as we open God's word is my passionate plea to not walk away from Jesus. Don't do it. Stay right here because there's so much more of him to discover. The deep end of the pool of his knowledge, love, mercy, and grace has no bottom. Dive as far as you can go. And so I know that there are so many counterfeits that look really good and they promise more immediate gratification, but Jesus is the only genuine treasure. He is the only source of true satisfaction. He is so much better than everything else. And and this is another time where it's best to sort of just ignore that chapter division between Colossians 1 and 2 because Paul is taking that passion that he has expressed and the explanation as to why he's a servant 
to the church at Colossae, or serving to the church in general. And then in chapter 2, begins with him applying that overarching passion specifically to the church at Colossae and the cities that are around them. So he starts chapter 2 with the word for, indicating a continuing thought from the end of chapter 1. So let's read this together. For, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. So it's not just for the church abroad, it's for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Uh, This section of scripture uh, seems to have a chiastic structure to it, which, which means that the climactic point is right in the middle, and everything else before and after is funneling us to that climactic center. And so we're going to, if you get this in your minds, we're going to work from the outside in today. From the outside in, considering verses 1 and 5 together, which focus on Paul, and then verses 2 and 4, which focus on the church, specifically the Colossians, and then verse 3, which climactically focuses on Christ. So we have Paul, Colossians, Jesus. That's our outline for this morning. Back to verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And then the end of the passage, verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So in those two verses, Paul is sharing that he is both struggling and rejoicing. He's struggling and rejoicing. Paul's overarching ministry to the churches that he concluded chapter 1 with, toiling and struggling with all the energy he has, was not just for the churches that that Paul was at. It's not just for the churches that that Paul had planted. No, in verse 1, he's taking his general philosophy of ministry and personalizing it for the Colossians and the church that was 12 miles away. The church of Laodicea is mentioned in verse 1, and Paul is expecting the Colossians to share this letter with that church as well. And he says, I have a great struggle for you. In verse 5, he says, I know I'm not with you in person. He's never even met them as a reminder, but I'm with you in spirit. He's with them in spirit, even though he's never met them, rejoicing in their faith. So here's my question. Why? Why does Paul feel this way about churches he's never met before? Like, doesn't Paul have enough to worry about? He's planted a bunch of other churches. There's so much going on. He's in prison right now. Why is he so concerned? Why is he struggling for churches that he's never met? Why? And this passage doesn't explicitly answer that question, uh, but let me point out two things. And the first is that we probably shouldn't underestimate the significance of spiritual grandchildren. Now now stay with me. Stay with me when I say that. Uh, 
what, who Paul is talking to in this letter are, are, are third-generation believers. Because Paul gave the gospel to Epaphras, who's talked about in chapter 1, and who then took the gospel to Colossae and to Laodicea. So, so who Paul is talking to in this letter are his spiritual grandchildren, if you will. And every grandparent talks about how great it is to be a grandparent. Like, across the board, as I talk to you guys, the, like, across the board, being a grandparent is apparently the best. I say apparently because that is not on the immediate horizon for me yet. But, funny as it may sound, I want you to know that right now I am praying for spiritual grandchildren. That, that God, but this is what I mean, but that by God's grace, I would be making disciples who go on to make disciples. That I would make disciples who make disciples. And I hope you are praying for spiritual grandchildren as well. That you would be making disciples who go on to make disciples. Because how amazing would it be to get to celebrate the spiritual progress of believers that you have not met, but have met Jesus because of your faithfulness to carry out the Great Commission. This is what Paul is experiencing, and, and who is he who he's writing to? When, when we talk about making more and better followers of Jesus, I want us to have a vision that includes more and better followers. We haven't met ourselves, but they've met Jesus because the disciples we made went on to make more disciples because that's the way the kingdom of God is intended to multiply. So, so don't underestimate the significance of third generation believers, spiritual grandchildren, which is what the Colossians were to Paul. That, that's one. That, that's one reason I think he cares. But also, don't underestimate the unifying impact of the Holy Spirit within all believers. Because when Paul says his spirit is with the Colossians, even though he's never been physically present, I believe that is thanks to the same Holy Spirit indwelling all followers of Jesus. And I know that if you haven't grown up in church, uh, so, sometimes we use language that can be quite confusing. And I just want to call ourselves out at, the, at that. You're like, boy, this is a different language than I've ever heard before. And if you've grown up in church, you don't even think about it. There's so many of those things. But the reason you might hear someone talk about having brothers and sisters in Christ is not because everyone is related, okay? It's because when you place your faith in the work that Jesus has done in your place, you go from being alienated from God to adopted into the family of God. You go from being alienated to adopted. So when you meet another follower of Jesus, you are meeting a spiritual family member. And there's a unity that we are called to enjoy and to cultivate. And that connectedness of the universal church is why I believe Paul was rejoicing in the faith of the Colossians and struggling for their spiritual health. Because other faithful churches are not competition. They are part of the greater family of God. And in verse 2, Paul elaborates on what he was longing for them and for all the churches he had not seen face to face. Look at this, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He is longing for the Colossians' assurance and protection. Paul wants the Colossians to be 
filled with Christ. He doesn't want them to have room for anything else. He wants them to have full assurance, knowing and understanding Christ. And he sees the church being knit together in love as the means to the end of full assurance. So let's slow down and think about this. There's a connection between unity of faith and assurance of faith in this verse. There's a connection between the unity of faith and the assurance of faith. There is safety in numbers. Following Jesus is intended to be a group activity. I'll explain it this way. Don't, don't you love it when, we find, when you find someone else who agrees with you on something? Isn't that, you love finding someone else that, that agrees with you. We love that affirmation, don't we? Especially on a topic where maybe we typically feel isolated in our perspective, right? Because it can be pretty disorienting when something is really black and white to you. It's, it's so obvious, but then you keep finding other people who disagree with you, right? And, and I think what inevitably ends up happening in those situations is you end up thinking to yourself, wait a minute. Am I the crazy one here? Right? How many of you have ever had that thought? Wait, am I, am I the crazy one? Like, why am I the only one that sees this? Like, how does this, how does this work? Right? And, 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 and then you have an experience of relief when finally someone says, same. Right? Like, yes, I, I agree. Why doesn't anyone else see this? Right? Everyone else might be crazy, but the two of us, we have this figured out. Right? And, and, and there's a danger to this, especially in the internet age, uh, where no matter what you believe and how wrong it might be, you can find eight other people that agree with you, right? And, and you can insulate yourselves from any critique, and, and that can be dangerous. But, but the encouragement and assurance of a unity that comes from the love of Christ is why following Jesus in community is essential, because it can get really disorienting out there. Like, there's a lot of people who think what I believe is crazy. Right? And, and, and you might go home today to a family who thinks that what you believe and what you do on Sunday mornings is silly. And, and there's lots of reminders that our primary citizenship is in a different kingdom. And, and maybe you don't even share your beliefs with others anymore because you don't think it will be persuasive to them. Or, or maybe if you were being completely honest, you aren't that confident in what you believe yourself. And, and if you are trying to follow Jesus in isolation, can I tell you, you are in danger. And this is why we see it as, as, we see it as so important to gather together. And, and to be in community with one another, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week, because we need the encouragement of knowing someone else sees Jesus the same way that we do. I love being with people who love Jesus and love talking about them, and love talking about him. I, I love it. I, I, I need it. My, my heart needs it. My soul needs it. And yours does too. Because life can be so discouraging. And I hope when we get together, we aren't just talking about sports or politics or how unseasonably warm it is right now. Because our unity of faith is what feeds our assurance of faith. Which protects us from Paul's concern for the church in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So 
instead of being deluded with plausible arguments, he wants verse 2 to be true, for them to have full assurance of faith. The, the best defense against being deceived is being fully assured of the truth. But when we don't know what's true, we can believe all sorts of things. Uh, when your kids are young, boy, they believe all sorts of things, all sorts of crazy things when they're young. Right? There's monsters in their closet that you have to check on every single night. There's a mythical creature that's going to deliver them presents if they're good. They believe, kids actually believe, that their lives will be better when they're adults. <laughs> right? They don't know any better. They don't know any better. They believe lots of silly things. And you have to try to convince them, actually, you have it really good right now. How many of you have had that debate with your kids? No, trust me. Your life is so much better. I'd trade places with you in a minute. But they don't know. They don't know. And when you don't know Jesus... There are lots of arguments that suddenly sound plausible. And my proof of that is, have you noticed that people seem to believe all kinds of different things? Right? And, and if you've ever listened to someone's beliefs and thought, how can you really believe that? Like, how, how, that, doesn't, that, doesn't even, that doesn't even make any sense. And, and maybe they know it doesn't follow any sort of logical flow. It's just what they believe and my explanation as to how that happens would be this. It's because people are searching. They are searching for the answers to life's biggest questions. And the brokenness of this world drives people to desperately search for something, right? Just anything that they can hold on to. And they'll try to cling to all sorts of different things, hoping that it will bring some level of stability to their lives. And when you don't know Jesus, there are all sorts of different things that seem worth a try in your desperation. And when our confidence isn't in Christ when we are isolated and lack assurance of understanding, that's when plausible arguments can be quite deceptive. It's how Adam and Eve found themselves eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's how the Israelites found themselves bowing down to a golden calf. It doesn't even make sense. What are you doing? Doubt leads to deception. And this is the first time that Paul references the false teaching that he feared leading the Colossians astray. He's going to talk about it more as we go through this letter. Uh, but, but he saw their best defense against deceptive arguments. And our best defense against deceptive arguments is to believe verse 3 is true. This is the climactic verse right at the center of this passage more than anything else this morning, I am praying that you will embrace and believe this truth because Paul wants them to have full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you have Paul, and then the Colossians, and right in the center, you have Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and and knowledge. We're just going to settle in and try to begin to grasp the truth that is so tightly compacted in these 11 words. And it all starts with the realization that the mystery of God is found in a person. And let me tell you, if, if your understanding of God doesn't start right here, then nothing else is going to make sense. Because the Bible doesn't point us ultimately to a system or to a program the Bible points us to a person. Maybe you've heard someone say, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. Now, I, I was golfing with somebody, 
And, and once he found out I was a pastor, he, he prefaced the question, since you're a li- religious person, let me ask you this. And before I answered his question, I responded that I don't really view myself as a religious person, depending on your definition of that word. I just see myself as a follower of Jesus, because it's about a person. Because most religions are quite formulaic. Here's what you have to do, right? Christianity is here's what Jesus has done. And the Bible doesn't give us this complex formula. It's not you need to do this, and then you need to do this, and you need to do this in order to find success or the secret to life. No, this is the message of the Bible, if I could summarize it really simply. The message of the Bible is you need Jesus. And I need Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. But if you have Jesus, you have everything because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I, I had the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with, with a neighbor this week who, who's just trying to make sense out of life. And he, and he was trying to, uh, and as he was trying to understand, he, he said this. He said, but, but Tim, all the people in your church are, are in different places, Right, and, and he tried to relate it to school. He's like, not everyone's an A student, Tim. Right? They, they, they might get some parts, but not, but not other parts. And he was trying to figure out if there was like a line of understanding or a line of doing that was enough. And I said to him, this is not a 100-question test. This is a one-question test. That's what it is. It's a one-question test. Is Jesus the king of your life? Is he your forgiver and leader? Have you come to believe that he is your greatest treasure? Uh, there's different ways to ask it, but it's really one question. Have you found Jesus? That's the question. If you haven't, then you probably know deep down that something's missing and you're not quite so sure why. But if you have found, the, if you have found him, then you have found the location of all the true treasure. Maybe you would ask, how do I know if I don't just know about Jesus, but I've really found him? How do do I know that? Great question. I'm so glad you asked. Here's my suggestion. When you truly find Jesus, as verse 3 describes him, you won't feel a need to search anywhere else anymore. There is a contentment and a peace, and a relaxation that comes over you because you found the treasure. You won't need to feel a need to search anywhere else. You will feel a need to search for more of him because all the treasure is right here, and it's in Christ. If you want to find wisdom, you have to find Jesus. If you want to find knowledge, you have to find Jesus. Uh, Let me quickly mention, uh, wisdom and knowledge... Are, are not the same, but they're probably literary cousins, you could say. And I heard someone explain the difference this way, and I thought it was helpful. So for simplicity, here we go. Knowledge is understanding how to tell a joke. Wisdom is knowing when to tell a joke. And some of you needed to hear that, okay? Knowledge is knowing how to tell a joke. Wisdom is knowing when. Knowledge is facts and information. Wisdom is the discernment to know how to apply what you know in real life situations. And as with anything valuable, there's lots of counterfeits to wisdom and knowledge. But the wisdom and knowledge that is genuine only has one source, according to God's word. 
And in many ways, I see Colossians 2-3 as sort of the condensed version of Proverbs 2, 1-8. I want you to look at this on the screen. This is what Solomon teaches his son. Proverbs 2, 1-8. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Isn't this amazing how closely connected they are? For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of saints. If you want the wisdom and knowledge that comes from God, you have to find Jesus. If you are praying for more wisdom, whether you know it or not, you are praying for more of Jesus. If you are praying for more knowledge and understanding, you are praying for more of Jesus. Church, do we believe that? Do do we really believe this, that everything we need to know is found in Christ and his word? Paul says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, which is not to say that God is hiding wisdom from us because he's revealed Jesus to us. This is saying that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the most valuable information in all of the world, is safe. It is protected. Nicholas Cage can't break in and steal this, right? I, I, I love what Rush Witt said. He said, you can't break into Christ. You bow before him. Which means that we don't take wisdom and knowledge by force. We receive them through surrender. Jesus, I need you. And I think our natural inclination, at least for many of us, is to try to take these things by force, right? How often do we say that we just want the answers, right? Just tell me what to do. And it can be very frustrating for us, right? Just give me the formula. Give me the step-by-step instructions. Where's the YouTube video that can tell me how to do this? And, And that might work for fixing things around the house or for saving money. But relationships, I hope you have noticed, are rarely formulaic. And that's very frustrating to a lot of people because we prefer if you do this, this, and this, then this will be the outcome. If you follow these five steps as a parent, then your child will turn out this way. Wouldn't we love for that to be true? But it's not. It's not. When it, and so when it comes to being right with God, when it comes to spiritual wisdom and understanding, here is what you need to hear today. If all you want is the answers to the test of life, but you don't want Jesus, then all the answers will always be wrong. It doesn't matter what you do if you don't desire Jesus because all the treasure is found in him. He must be superior and central in everything or you won't have anything. We talked about this in chapter one. God doesn't just want us to do what he wants. He wants to be what we want. So his wants become our wants. Our desires aligning with his desires because he is what we ultimately desire. This is why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. 
which means submitting to Jesus as king because the kingdom of God is about the reign of God. And so when we come to him, acknowledging and submitting to his rightful position on the throne, that's when all these things will be added to us because Jesus is the treasure that contains all the treasures. Jesus is the treasure that contains all the treasure. And until you believe this, you will find yourself searching in all kinds of different places for what only Jesus can provide. But once you believe this, you will find yourself just searching for more of him. This, is, this belief is what keeps us safe from false teaching and deceptive arguments because we know true wisdom and knowledge only has one source and it is Christ. This is what keeps us stable in the chaos that is our world. Case in point, on Tuesday evening, you can turn on your TV and listen to political pundits whose view of the world is dictated by election results. And no matter the results on Tuesday, you will find somebody on TV who is celebrating that there is hope and there is light in the world. And you will find others who are freaking out because the world is clearly ending based on one election. Right? You will find both. We, on the other hand, will go vote, and then we will celebrate that our hope and stability is found in Christ and Christ alone. Because our hope is built on nothing less, church, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The good news that we celebrate today and every day is that Jesus, the treasure who contains all of the treasure, was willing to be treated as the worst and most worthless of sinners. The reason there's no formula to being right with God is because the formula includes perfection. We would have to be perfect in order to meet God's standard of holiness. And all of us have fallen woefully short of meeting that standard on our own. But we have hope today. We have joy today because Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived and then he died the death that you and I deserve to die. He took the just punishment for all of our sin on himself at the cross. He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. So if we come to the end of ourselves, and if we stop trying to earn things from God and instead bring our nothing to the foot of the cross, trusting in his life, his death, his resurrection, that's when all of our sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Christ is credited as our righteousness. We become part of the eternal family of God, not based on a formula, not based on a program. It is based on a person. He is the treasure who contains all the treasures. And once you find him, you don't need to look anywhere else. His name is Jesus. Amen, church? I hope you found him. And I hope you believe he's the treasure that contains all the treasures. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not see a need to look anywhere else but to Christ. Because we believe he holds and protects everything that we need. That all the wisdom and knowledge that we need for everything is found in you. So I pray we would come to you over and over and over again and dive deeper into who you are, desiring to know you and know you more. We're so thankful that we have the opportunity now to remember what you've done to make a relationship with you possible. And it's only through the blood of Jesus. So thank you for this time that we have to celebrate what you've done and the fellowship, the unity that we have through the taking of communion. 
May this bring you honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.